Hello, I'm Sarah Vine, and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Mel Plus. I'm joined this week and every week by my friend and co-host, Imogen Edwards-Jones, who once again is not in the studio. She is obviously <laughs> gallivanting, gallivanting around the place, this time in Edinburgh at the Fringe Festival. How exciting. You haven't had a Fringe there for two years. And last time you were up there, as I recall, you were a judge. Which was about a thousand I was, years ago. I, it was a thousand years ago. I was the Perrier judge for the comedy competition. And I mm-hmm. rattled around Edinburgh, basically fueled by tequila, for a month, going to about eight shows a day. So it's very I nice to remember, I seem to remember you were hospitalised after that. Or I imagine that. Was that... Well, I was... <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> Wasn't that the time you ended up in hospital with pericarditis or something ridiculous? Yes, like something terrible like that. Yes, I think I over... <laughs> Eggs, my pudding, I think, is the expression. <laughs> but this time I'm here to see my daughter, would you believe? So that's exciting. So very sober. Yes, it's so exciting. So she's 17, is that right? 17, yes, yes. And on the fringe. Yes. I mean, I do feel like I'm 40 years older than anybody here. I mean, they are, it's so young and so exciting because obviously it hasn't been happening for two years because of COVID. And there are so many things to see. Mm. I mean, so many different mm. places, so many different things. You know, it's comedy, there's music. I mean, it's really buzzy. And I do feel like maybe I should go and sit in a darkened room already. <laughs> Are you standing outside the theatre with a big sign saying, come and see my daughter? She's brilliant. Come and see my daughter. No, I am in a sort of weird hotel that smells of, smells of cheap croissant and flat orange <laughs> juice. That's where Lovely. I am at the moment. Waiting. Yes, yes, I shall march out in a minute to go and see more shows. I'm going to see Omid Jalili later as well. As oh, he's very people. funny, isn't he, usually? He's yeah. very funny, yes. And I saw a great show last night called Sheep, which is a sort of sketch show. So, no, there's lots to see. It's really very exciting. I think and you it's and very I easy. next year. Yeah, I, I would easy. love to come. I haven't been for years. It's like a shot in the arm, actually. It's kind mm. of... Uh, also, because the weather is nice. Quite often, mm. obviously, you're mostly shaking the drops off an umbrella before you go in. <laughs> to yeah. a venue but because it's got blue skies it's actually obviously not quite as hot as where you are I imagine no it's very boring and hot down here well anyway let's yeah. get Allegra on the phone and have a chat with her okay great hello Allegra how is Edinburgh how are you basking in the glory of your success very very different experience to what I was expecting I've been doing a lot of walking right. um, which is probably a good thing very tiring we're waking up at 8 and going to bed at 2 Waking up at eight, Allegra. Oh my God. For a teenager, that's quite <laughs> yes. early, isn't it? Yes, do know. <laughs> it's early for us so, because 17. It's, 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 it's a. Yeah, I don't think my 17 year old has seen eight o'clock for a very long time. So, what's the play about? Tell us. And a five star reviews. It's amazing. But I mean, yes, it is a pr- huge pressure because you've got to do it every day and it's at 12 30, isn't it? Which is really rude because obviously, if it was at three o'clock in the afternoon, that'd be much easier. You could actually get up at a sensible time. Yes, it is about, well, two girls, really. Basically, Mean Girls meets Wild Child, if that makes sense. What's Wild Child? Am I too old? I don't know what Wild Child is. Is it Lord of the Flies, like Lord of the Flies? I don't know. Oh, well, Wild Child is sort of British boarding school, Mean Girls in a a Catholic all-girls British boarding school, let's just say that. Yes. And it's sort of the race to be head girl, who will be head girl. Will it be... Catherine, who is, you know, the Regina George of this school, or Hattie, yeah. who is the uh, Lindsay Lohan character, I forget her right. name. Do you know what? We're very funny, but you also will slightly clench your butt cheeks as well, because there are some very awful moments where we do do a lot of bullying to one poor girl. 
whose mother was actually sitting oh. in the audience yesterday, slightly sort of clutching her heart because we are that oh. awful. And we sort of had to go up to her and be like, I'm really oh, sorry, no. we do love your daughter. Do you have to do any snogging in front of your mother? Will you do any snogging? No, no snogging. snogging. Don't worry, don't worry, no snogging. Oh, good, because I was a bit worried about Thank that. Thank God for that. I mean, Imogen, it's going to be quite Thanks. interesting to see your daughter on the stage, isn't it? It is going to be interesting. You feel quite protective. And also, if you're going to be really mean and horrible, maybe I should just not turn up later on today <laughs> it is just pretending it is just pretending Imogen but it's but yes. it's interesting because you're seeing it I mean presumably most of the audience are not mums so they're just normal people who have no investment in the play or the people so how's that I mean is mm. this the first time Allegra that you've done it in front of a sort of quote unquote real audience I mean yes but, uh, you know they're not really on our side let's just say that I have had people come up to us in the street going you were brilliant we really enjoyed the play although I shouldn't really be telling you because you were awful like, we hated right. your character, but you were brilliant as your character, which was quite funny. Lots of people were like, we don't know whether we should say well done, because we really did despise you, but, but well, well if done. Play- <laughs> if you're playing a nasty person and they really hate you, then obviously you've done your job very well. Do you all find yourself drawing on, on experiences in school for it? I mean, is there, are there familiar themes? I mean, there are definitely familiar themes, themes for some members of the cast. Me, certainly not, because I never was ever in the running forehead girl. <laughs> that's not what your mother told me that's not what Imogen said she said that you oh, really? were always going to be head girl yes it, I, for, for some of the girls in, in the cast obviously I feel like they can relate to it slightly more than I can because I've never yeah. been in all girls school until this year but you know it's a very fun place to be in it's very high energy and mm. I sort of do feel like a Duracell Barney half the time because I am jumping around everywhere I think my daughter would relate because she went to an all-girls school and the bullying there was off the scale. I think uh, there's something about all-girls schools. Yeah, it's not very nice. Yeah, there's not something about nice. all-girls schools, yeah. Yeah, and hers was a, not Catholic. Hers was a Church of England, so all the elements were there. Are the teachers present in this play at all? There are no teachers present present in this play mm. at all. It is an hour-long conversation between yeah. like four people. Right. Between, okay. you know, okay. the announcement of who's going to be head girl and there's a yeah. speech at the end. And, you know, it's like it's a lunch break. Well, good luck today. Break a leg. I believe that's what they say in the theatre community. Yes, they do. <laughs> Not that I'm in the theatre community. You're down with it, Sarah. Down with it. I am down it. Well with done. it. Sarah, you're um, so down with it. <laughs> I am so down with yeah. it. <laughs> Anyway, I wish you all the best. And if you want to go and see it, dear listener, it's at the Edinburgh Fringe and it's called Numbers and it's daily at 12.20 at The Space. Kemi Badenoch made headlines when she launched her bid to take the role of party leader last month during the Tory party contest. But the former minister has also written about the need for freer speech and how telling the truth can set people free. The MP for Saffron Walden joins us now. Hi, Kemi. Hi. Hi, Sarah. Are you in full summer holiday mode? Yes. The weather is lovely. We are in uh, northwest Essex in Clavering and I'm having a fantastic time with my three babies. So are you feeling quite relieved not to be in that whole, I'm trying to think of a word that's not rude, maelstrom. What, in the Malay? Fight? 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 In the maelstrom. <laughs> <laughs> the maelstrom no, of the Tory no. party contest. Are you missing it? I wouldn't say missing it because it's very stressful. But I'm also mm. not relieved because, you know, losing when you really have something that you want to do isn't great either. But mm. there are two good candidates there, despite all the stuff that people are saying about them. Sadly, 
you know, people spend more time saying nasty things than nice things. I've worked with them both and we have two Mm. good candidates. Are you going to come out for either of them or are you just going to wait and see? No, no. As soon as I went out, I said that I wouldn't endorse any more candidates because Mm. I will happily work with whoever is prime minister. Mm. And in particular, because Rishi and Liz were my secretaries of state in my previous roles in the Treasury and Inequalities, I actually know them quite well. Mm. And... I felt it would be probably quite upsetting to to whoever I didn't pick if I endorsed yeah. the other. And I still want to stay friends with them both. So I told them both that I'm not endorsing either of you. I think you'd both be great. It's, um, you know, may the best person win and the members will do that, not me. I think that just demonstrates the wisdom that quite a lot of people liked about you when you were actually in the contest. Mm. Mm. Um, as you know them so well, what would you say were the sort of main points of difference between them? They're just very different. They've got very different personalities. So it depends on what you want. You know, when you go to a restaurant and you can't decide, oh, should I have mm. this? It's the healthy option. But well, this is so tasty. <laughs> and Never the healthy <laughs> option for me. No. <laughs> that's basically, um, yeah, I, I'm not going to say one of them is healthy and one of them is tasty because I know people mm. read all sorts of things in, into that. <laughs> But with with it just depends on what you think is needed. If you mm. think what we need is the person who is super technocrat will, you know, be steady and stay this course and, you know, technical competence, policy brain, then I think that's Rishi is the sort of person that you would want. They can both do these things. But if you want somebody who's very maverick, I think Liz, I Mm. loved working with her because there was an unpredictability there that usually helped us get into the right place. Sometimes if you're too predictable in politics, you don't think of new ideas. You Mm. just do the same thing over and over again and nothing and nothing Mm. changes. And I actually think that we need we need some of that. So it all depends on, on which thing you, you feel like at the moment. And, and, and the mm. members will decide what they think the, the country needs. When you're out and about, who do you feel in your bones is who people are rooting for most? It depends on who, who you're talking to. Uh, mm. So there are some people who really like Rishi's sort of focus on the fiscal soundness, balancing the debt. They're very worried about public spending. But there are also people who are feeling the squeeze in terms of just how much they lose in their pay packets to tax. They want tax cuts and they want them now. Those people want Mm. Liz. It all depends on what you want, which I think is the right thing. I think what what I've really hated is people saying nasty things about... um, either of them, you know, at the beginning of the competition, I, I felt that there were some very unpleasant, very misogynistic things about Liz, people mm. saying she was weird. She's not weird at all. She's just, you know, she's just herself. She's a different person. She's got a different personality. She's not boring or staid. And people who try and put her into a straitjacket or into a mould that she doesn't fit into. And I think she's shown that she's very, very much her own woman and is doing well. And then now also people, you know, the really unpleasant stuff about uh, Rishi being a snake, I think it's appalling. I think it's absolutely mm. appalling. He's not. I think he's actually a very loyal person. And I'm mm. hoping that we can stop these personal attacks on politicians because it puts people off and it means that lots of good people don't want to come into politics. 
We, well, can have it. we can have a debate without slagging each other off all the time. Yeah, I mean, you don't need to have these ad hominem attacks. I mean, I do think these this sort of language like snake and stuff is very unpleasant. Yeah. And also it's very reductive and it's quite one-dimensional, which is, you know, yeah. it's an, I think it insults the electorate. I mean, that's the one thing that I liked about your campaign style, which was that you were very much, listen, I'm not going to insult you as an electorate. I'm not going to tell you stuff that is not true or that I'm not going to patronise you. I'm going to tell you how difficult this is going to be and that there are no easy solutions. And I think that's a good conversation for politicians to be having. I think often politicians treat the electorate as though they were slightly stupid children. Do you know what I mean? Here's some lollies, now go off and play in the corner. And actually, (laughs) the the electorate are not like that. They're very, you know, they're perfectly capable of engaging with the issues. Precisely. And what I feel we haven't done enough of is explain trade-offs and that we are very aware of the trade-offs and make sure that you don't have people who think that they can have their cake and eat it all the time. The, the, mm. I, I remember saying that we, we've had enough of cakeism, and I see it in my own constituency. People who tell me that they're very worried about climate change, why aren't we doing something about it? And then when you do do something, they say, well, we, we don't want that. <laughs> you can't have this. They don't, uh, you know, we don't want any solar farms. Uh, we don't want pylons because even though we need that to increase the grid capacity, if we're, get, if we're all going to have electric cars, we, mm. we don't have grid capacity to plug them in. And they want electric cars, but they don't want the pylons to go near their houses. Mm. Well, where is it going to go if we're going to do these things? And people need to accept that there is a trade-off. And too mm. often, I think we try and pretend that, well, you don't have to have this sort of house building, uh, even though we know we need more homes and, and, and nothing is going to negatively impact you. But we, we need to be a bit more serious about the conversations that we have. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that's the sort of race to kind of please everyone is very bad for politics. What do you think about Boris? I talk to a lot of people who think that he should never have gone and that actually the whole sort of thing was just a sort of great colossal act of self-harm by the Tory party. Where are you I, on all that now? I, so, so Boris, the man I loved, a great, great person. Personally to me, he was actually really wonderful. When my dad died, you know, I got a handwritten note for him, as I did when uh, my children were born, certainly the last two uh, mm. birthday cards. He was that sort of person. And whenever I had a problem, he would send, you know, I remember him sending, not whenever I had, but on occasions when I had issues, he would send a, a text saying, you know, just keep going don't worry about this. So as an individual, my Mm. personal relationship with him, I thought uh, not particularly close, but was very good. I can't speak for others, but which is why the resignation was really difficult. I mean, the night before I was in agony over it, Mm. but what people don't understand when they talk about it being an act of self-harm is they don't understand why this most recent allegation involving Chris Pincher was Mm -hmm. of a different order of magnitude to everything else that went before. And I don't want to go into the details of it, but whenever I speak to people who say, how could you have done this? And, oh, what's the big deal? It was just somebody pinching bottoms. I explain to them that these allegations are extremely serious. This isn't the sort of thing that you just sort of dismiss or wave away or brush under the carpet. And it wasn't handled well. And Mm. having been in a situation where the government was just not working anymore in the sense that we were spending all our time talking about things that were not what we were elected to do. And if you Mm. read the resignation letter that I and um, the other former minister signed, we were complimentary about him, but said it's just not working 
anymore and we don't think that this can this can carry on was he not just hounded out by the press though kemi i feel slightly that that was the case that he became he became the situation untenable i do think that there was a lot of hounding i do think that he had far more sort of personal attacks and people who just couldn't deal with the fact that he was prime minister, a sort of a Boris derangement syndrome. But mm-hmm. I think that the world we live in now is that whoever is prime minister gets hounded. You look at every prime minister since Margaret Thatcher, nobody like nobody likes uh, John Major or Tony Blair or Gordon Brown or Theresa May. Mm-hmm. They're all their reputations. Being prime minister, which is, I mean, the question you should be asking me is, what, why did I want to do this? Being prime minister yeah. <laughs> means making a, a personal I was going, sacrifice. Going to be next. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it involves making a personal sacrifice about your personal reputation, your private life, your family mm. life more so, and the lives of everyone. Making that sacrifice for the greater good, and people probably not realizing many of the good things uh, that you did. And I think Boris, I always said that he made the big calls right on Brexit, on Ukraine. On the vaccines, he was absolutely fantastic mm. on those things. Mm. But sometimes, you know, I was a Brexiteer. I was somebody who was very supportive of him. But sometimes some things aren't working and it's not enough to say you're hounded out by the press or, or this or that. There's, there's more that goes on inside beyond what the press are doing. And I think that that's something people really need to understand. And at the end of the day, our country is more than any one individual person. And that's mm-hmm. what people need to remember. But in terms mm. of Boris as an individual, yes, loved him and still do. You said, well, you should be asking me why I wanted to do it. As you know, my ex-husband is Michael Gove and I never understood. Well, I did understand why he wanted to do, why he had several attempts at the leadership. But I have to say that mm. the the brutality of it was something that really I found very, very hard to handle. I mean, how did your family cope with your run? It helps that my husband and I met in politics. Yeah, he's been a former councillor. He stood for Parliament in Northern Ireland. So mm. he has been a great help because mm. he understands exactly what the sacrifice would entail. But mm. also, this isn't something that we'd been talking about for years and years. This was something that very much happened after the resignation. But we had mm. both been bemoaning all the things that were going wrong. And mm. he actually said, you know, you should consider this. And a few other people had been saying that. And I thought, including... Mm. Uh, your ex-husband, by the way, he said, you yeah, know, mm. one day I think you can do this job. And then mm. I said, well, how about now? But the truth is, you're not really thinking about uh, the fallout in your life. You're just obsessed mm. about everything that's going wrong and thinking mm. someone needs to fix this. So in the same way that I ended up being known as somebody who is a, a culture warrior, that's not what I came in mm. into politics to do. But I saw mm. so much stuff going wrong and I kept thinking, well, okay, any minute now someone's going to say something. Any minute now, someone's going to explain why this is not right. And no one did. And I thought, oh, okay, so basically if I don't say this, nothing nothing will happen. And that's how you end up doing things which you aren't planning to do. I would have been perfectly happy just living the rest of my life out as a backbench MP. But I am very worried about the direction the country uh, is going in. I'm hoping that I will have an opportunity to be part of a team that helps to sort it out. I just wanted to say you're very well known for sort of speaking uncomfortable truths, as it were. I just wonder how, mm. why are you so brave and capable of doing that? Because the rest of us <laughs> are slightly cowed by that sort of situation. I think I have some advantages. And one of them is that on many of the issues that I've spoken about, the reason why many people are scared is because they mm. can very quickly 
be dismissed as being racist or as being sexist mm. or homophobes. And being a black woman means that it is a lot harder for people to say that dismissively. People think, mm-hmm. well, well, if she's saying this, maybe there's a bit more to what's going on than just nasty bigots who don't want to who don't want to be nice to people. So that has helped me a lot. And it's come at a cost in a different way in that Rather than being called a racist or a sexist, I'm called a race traitor. But that's really by yes, a very I was going to say you get a lot of very nasty stuff from the far left, who basically yeah. think that if you're a black woman, you should be in their team, and they don't like the fact that you're yeah. on somebody else's team. Is that correct? Gosh. Yes, exactly. That is almost where the majority of my uh, abuse comes from. I saw it even before I became an MP when I first stood for Parliament in um, Dulwich, yeah, which takes in quite a lot of Brixton where I was living at the time, 12 plus years ago, 14 years ago. And I would knock on the door of these people who, you know, you could tell they were very nice sort of liberal lefties. And once they heard that I was, and they'd smile and think, oh, hello. And you'd say, oh, I'm, I'm a conservative. And their eyes would widen in horror. And they would very quickly <laughs> become not just um, negative, but unpleasant in a... Wow. You obviously don't know what you're doing, darling. Um, mm. Wow. Uh, you know, like you'd been, like like you'd been sort of, be... like you were in a cult or something, that you'd been stolen Brain away walk. by the loonies. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, exactly. I, I, I would get that sort of thing. And even even in Safford Warden, some very silly person, when just before my first election, when I was standing in, in the market square, some very silly person said, well, you're obviously a very nice person, but do you not understand what the Tory party is? I just thought, well, how patronising. <laughs> Do you think that I would actually be standing here selected as a parliamentary candidate having held all these other positions if I didn't know what I was doing? So so some people are very confused by it. But genuinely, I think we are moving past that. We are now living in Mm. an age where the colour of your skin or your sex is not determining which party or your sexuality even is not determining which party you're supporting. Mm. I think the diversity of our leadership contest is showing that not just that the country is changing, but mm. the stereotypes of who thinks what, who says what, who does what, are being mm. eroded, uh, which is a very good thing. There's a thing also where, you know, you're, you're expected to be oppressed if you come from your background, and you're not, are you? You're very successful, very intelligent, very capable. Yes. And I think, you know... Uh, this... You are expected to be oppressed, you're right. <laughs> and this whole narrative... Well, thank you, thank which you is... for the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the idea that you don't want to fall back on any of those cliches and that you're perfectly capable of looking after yourself and making your own decisions and taking a view is, is surprising to some people. And that in, it, and that in mm. itself is a form of racism, if you, if you ask me. Yes, yes. yes. The, the, fascinating. Um, I mean, people, mm. people call it the soft bigotry of low expectations. I think it's a very yeah. complicated way of basically saying that you think that certain types of people can't do anything on their own unless mm. there's a you know a helpful white person assisting them Excellent. in their in their ed- endeavors and mm. it would be uh, doing a disservice to all of those young black people that i know who when mm. they are studious at school are accused of acting white i mean i know of one person who's wearing glasses was um teased and they said oh you think you're a swat you want to be white because wearing glasses and studying in that school was associated with um, with white things and black people don't do that. I mean, that's terrible. That's uh, awful. We need, 
yeah, we need different types of role models, not just mm. uh, celebrities and musicians. There's got to be a lot more than that. We need the plurality. Yeah. And knowing that you can be blackened in the Tory party as well as Labour, there's nothing that is restricting you in this country. This is a fantastic country where the mm. opportunity is there. We just need to make sure that people find yeah. it. And, uh, and, and you and know, no assumptions should be made about anyone, I don't think. And that's the key thing. Absolutely. I think this mm. is the important Absolutely. thing. I am quite worried about the next election. I'll be honest with you, Kemi. I am very worried that the Tories won't make it past the line. And what do you think needs to be done to try and bring that about? Well, my view is that no party has a right to be in power forever. You've got Mm -hmm. to keep showing the public that what you are doing is in their best interests and everything you're doing is about them, not about Mm. yourself. And uh, we have to earn that right to be re-elected. If you are worried, that means that we have not been doing as well as we should do and we need to fix that. And I think mm. that we need to we need to go back to first principles on a lot of things. We spend so much time thinking that, well, if you just give people some money, then that will be it. And uh, I was very worried that our levelling up agenda would end up being giving pots of money to mm. local councils. And thankfully, we've moved away from that rather than thinking... Mm really strategically about what sort of country we want to be. There are crises that need solving in the long term. I know the papers have been talking about the immediate term issues such as cost of living, but things like climate change, things like productivity and growth in Mm. a world where we need to compete better with other countries. I don't think that we are spending enough time looking at how all of those things tie together. It's not like it used to be 50, 80 years ago where the UK was just so much further ahead than many other countries that mm. we didn't need to worry. Other places are catching up, they're competing, mm. and that is good, that is right. But we need to make sure that we're creating a country that can survive in any type mm. of environment and doesn't always rely on us being streets ahead of, of the others. That may not be the case. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I am just worried about a sort of hung parliament and then a, a sort of liberal Labour coalition and then you know, a Scottish independence vote and PR and all of this stuff. Uh, You really are churning late at night, Sarah. (laughs) I am churning late at night, yes, sorry. I can really, Um, I can see the whole visions of the future. (laughs) You are absolutely right to um, to be worried. I'm worried about those things too. But I do think that we can we can overcome them. But we need to take people on a journey. We need to mm. ask, why is it that so many Scottish people want to go their own way instead of being part of the United Kingdom? I don't actually think it is as many as the SNP make out. Uh, mm. I think it is just in the same way that the Liberal Democrats were a protest vote for the government in power. Um, mm. I think the SNP is very much a protest vote for a lot of people who actually don't want to be independent, but they think that it's too easy allowing the same people to win everything and they think somebody yeah. else should should have yeah, a go. Yeah. They want to see some competition in mm. government, but the stakes are very high and we need to remind them that the stakes are incredibly high and that they could end up accidentally splitting our country, splitting the United Kingdom, mm. when really all they want to do is uh, just to have... Uh, Give the government a bloody nose. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, 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 exactly. That's all they, that's all they want they? to do. Yeah, yeah. That's all. I, I think that, yeah. that for a large cohort of people, that is actually all they want to all they mm. want to do. 
Yes, and that applies still to the Lib Dems. I think that a lot of people who are sort of vaguely dissatisfied with the Tories and cross with them for various reasons, who won't vote Labour, might vote Lib Dem, and then that will have serious repercussions. Because I don't think that the Labour Party are ready to govern. I really just don't. Mm. They are are not. What I see in Parliament is even more scary than probably what you see outside. Just the... Mm. The quality of their arguments, of the debate, the things they choose to focus on, they are so scared. Uh, If you think that we haven't done well enough in terms of pointing out problems, they are so scared. You look at the the issue of sex and gender, and Mm -hmm. the Labour Party was the party of feminism, and it's Mm. not anymore, because they're so scared of upsetting a very small group of people, they can't actually put out a positive narrative about what it is they're trying to they're trying to achieve. And they're like that on so many other issues. Well, they can't even, I mean, you know, Keir Starmer can't even say what a woman is. And when mm. I'm like, this is a big issue. I, I think this is a really big issue for us all, this issue of protecting women's identity. I mean, there's been, yeah. you know, there is a huge identity, you know, war going on. And the people who seem to be getting the worst end of it are, as ever, bloody women. Our children are also deeply, deeply confused. I think that, you know, your young children, Kemi, are probably a little bit too young to be part of this sort of storm. But my children are certainly sort of quite confused about what they're Mm. supposed to do, what they're supposed to say. They've got people transitioning in their classes and stuff. I think the, a lot of the, certainly a lot of the confusion should change. We are working to provide some clarity. So Suella Braverman, the Attorney General, um, gave a very good speech yesterday, which is just trying to help schools in particular navigate Mm. what is legal and what isn't legal. So one of the Mm. things, if you ask me about um, what I'm worried about, one of the things that I'm worried about is that because uh, politicians across the political spectrum are spending a lot of time trying to please everybody, we end up just sort of being campaigners rather than doing the hard work of legislating. And then the legislation is being changed by people who aren't in parliament at all. And if you look at the case of Alison Bailey, what organizations Mm. like Stonewall were successful in doing was telling people, actually, don't this is what the law says. We will explain it to you. We will tell you how to go about doing these things. And they were giving people information that was not correct. And that Mm. is what has got so many schools and so many hospitals into a mess. And Mm. the government machine just sort of allowed that to happen because it's easier to say nothing than to be the difficult person in the room saying that's not right. And Imogen, you know, you asked me, why is it that I am the one who said many of these things? I feel like the child in the emperor's new clothes. And mm-hmm. just exactly. Think, this is what <laughs> what, are, what are you people talking about? Can you not see what yeah. is obvious? It's, it's, we are yeah. living in the emperor's new clothes and we need yeah. more of that uh, little child pointing out the truth and saying, I think I mean I, I think also the problem is is a lot of people and uh, I, I do think there's a, a general lack of I know it's rude when I say this but I, I don't mean to be rude but what I mean is there's a general lack of courage and rigor yeah. in government and I think people mm, yeah. are very bad at they're very non-confrontational I think they don't want to have the argument. And mm. I, for me, this is just baffling because I think Parliament and politics is all about having the argument. It's all about having the debate. And it doesn't matter if you don't agree. The point is that you discuss the issues and you explore them and you do deep dives into these things and you don't make decisions based on 
you know, I was feeling a bit tired and I couldn't be bothered to fight back. It's not just that they're feeling tired. It's also social media. So Mm. previously, if you were an MP and you wanted to say something difficult, you'd say it in the House of Commons, in a committee somewhere on the floor of the House, maybe a sketch writer or a journalist who's really paying attention will write it up. But you were talking about it effectively in a closed room with the people who were there who were listening. Mm. Now, you will say something, and before you've even finished your speech, somebody on Twitter has said, Kemi Badenoch has said this terrible thing, not what you've said, and isn't it a disgrace? Out of context, and by the time you f- Yes, yes, out of context. By the time you finished, it's had 10,000 retweets. The Labour people who weren't in the room have shared it and said, she is a <laughs> disgrace. She shouldn't be allowed. I think Lucy Powell, a Labour MP, recently said that I shouldn't be allowed anywhere near children. Because, because I said the online, the online safety bill, I said, is not fit for purpose in its current format. There's some stuff in right. there, which I think it's is really not, bad for free speech. It's got, it's, it's, yeah. it's got nothing to do with um, the child safety elements. But again, a very lazy, unthinking, sort of reckless statement, which she put on Twitter saying um, I shouldn't be allowed anywhere near children. Most people right. won't know exactly what I said. They'll see her comment. They'll say, this MP is not safe for children. They'll retweet it. The next thing, the letters start coming into your parliamentary inbox and the work you're supposed to be doing, you have to stop so you can reply to your constituents. And then your local paper is saying, well, why did you say this? And you're explaining us, not what I said and so on. And most people... Um, Some people get very damaged by it in extreme Mm. circumstances, but most people just think, ah, you know what, it's not worth saying this difficult thing because I don't have time to deal with the Twitter storm. I will Mm -hmm. instead just stand up and say, isn't it great that we uh, have exercise and young people need to do more sport? And that that ends up being the level that ends up yeah. being the level of debate that we yeah. th- that we have. Yeah. That is one so, of the biggest. Uh, that is one of the biggest problems. So what are we going to do? We can't. Is there anything we can do about that? No. You just have to have balls of steel and a lot of people answering letters. Um, I think there are some things that we can do about it. Certainly, the balls of steel. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I think certainly more courage is needed by politicians, but also more support to each other. So I think something Mm. that should happen a little bit more is that when you see someone on your side of the political spectrum being out of order, I think having Mm. a word uh, Mm. saying what you're doing and saying is really inappropriate. I think, for example, Mm. with the the example of Lucy Powell, I think some of her colleagues who agree about the online safety bill should be saying, I know they're a different team, but mm-hmm. it's about doing the right thing, not about who's left and who's right. But I certainly is, do it Kemi, with my but colleagues. The thing, yeah. But the thing is, Kemi, she's an MP. Lucy Powell is an MP. I would expect better behaviour from her. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yes, I agree, yes yeah. social media is an issue. But if you're an elected member of parliament, you shouldn't behave in that way. Mm. There should be a committee in parliament that says to that MP, Lucy Powell, actually, you can't just say that about you know, that's totally, you know, you've taken that out of context. What you said was unacceptable. No, take it back. I think that uh, there should be a little bit more attention by the Parliamentary Standards Committee to what people do on social media, because Mm -hmm. it has an outsized effect. But there's also a part of it that's just a free speech issue. I'm an MP, I should be able to say whatever I like, and no one's going to stop me is the attitude. I'm here representing my constituents. I'm telling the truth is what uh, they will say. Mm. So it's very Mm. hard to ask a committee to start investigating what MPs 
say or don't say. The truth is many of these things should be self-regulating. A lot of Mm. it goes back to the point I was making earlier. A lot of it is really about getting better people standing as MPs in all the parties. And that is really hard at a time when people are terrified about the abuse they get, about the violation of privacy. In the extreme cases, what happened to David Amos and Joe Cox, Mm. people see all that. That is scaring so many people away. Uh, I mean, people, I think you'd be a great MP and they think, yeah, do you know what? No, thanks. It's not just the individuals concerned, it's their families. I mean, my children have grown up in the glare of politics and, you know, there's no doubt that it has affected them adversely. And, you know, you and I have had conversations about kids in politics. It's hard, you know, Mm -hmm. it's really difficult because if they go to state school like my two did and, you know, Michael changed the rules about the GCSEs, they're the ones who get it in the neck in the playground. You know, they have kids coming up to them saying, your father's ruined my mother's life or this, that and the other. Do you know what I mean? It's just, and it's not their fault. They don't understand what's going on. And that is also a function of social media because, of course, people read all this stuff and a lot of it's not true, frankly. Absolutely. I think so. So there is a a general problem about civility in public life. Mm. MP's behaviour is one thing. Social media is another. But even the media generally... And what they do choose to publish is part of it. So, you know, we're talking about calling people snakes. This is all just sort of (laughs) diminishing public discourse. Yeah, it's very puerile stuff. Um, There's there's too much focus uh, around people's personalities and the intrigue rather than the politics and and the policy. So the media has a part to play. Politicians have a part to play. But also just looking at the tech companies and the algorithms they use because they feed on outrage. They make people angry. Mm. It's that pylon culture, isn't it? Yes, yes. The pylon culture is encouraged by people seeing things that make them angry. If you tweet something that's wrong, you are likely to get more retweets and attention than if you Mm. retweet a correction saying, actually, this is not true. Here's the truth. Mm. Here's the evidence. I see it so many times. 100,000 retweets for false information, 200 for the correction later. People don't want to share things that... um, don't grab them emotionally and we Mm, need to find a way to get those algorithms changed and also of course the other problem is is that the mainstream media is also fighting off the internet as a rival to it so 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 that you end up in a kind of race to the bottom really yeah yes everybody's appealing to the lowest common denominator yeah and um you know, a lot of these random uh, websites and uh, social media outlets are stealing their lunch. So I find it extraordinary. They're newsletters that go out that basically just take other people's content and repurpose it and repackage it, which I think is quite is quite bad. <laughs> I mean, I write stuff all the time that then gets emailed to me by someone else because I'm on, you know, I subscribe to stuff. And quite often my mm. pieces just pop into my inbox on some sort of aggregate. It's bizarre. <laughs> Yeah, but it's not right because you are uh, you or whoever is do is the producer of the content is not getting either paid for their effort, which makes it harder to actually sustain a good journalism industry. Yeah, but also good quality journalism. And this is the other thing: is that if you want people to behave well, you know, you need to have parameters and you need professionals. And, you know, this is the thing. Well, I don't know. I think we've covered everything. Imogen, have you got any other thoughts? Kemi, really lovely to talk to you. And you're a superstar. And I've really enjoyed 
hearing what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you. That was Kemi Badenoch, the, I think, rather brilliant MP for Saffron Malden. If you enjoy listening to The Half Hour, why not visit mailpass.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at mailplus, me at Westminster Wag or Imogen at Imogen EJ. You've been listening to The Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine and Imogen Edwards-Jones. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 